This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, this is Spinal Tap. It was released in 1984, and I've often believed the world could be split in two ways, and that is those who've seen Spinal Tap and those who haven't. And if you haven't, see it, rent it, because it is one of the funniest movies ever made, and you don't need to have loved or liked any music to appreciate it. Here's Jesse talking about this cult classic. This is Spinal Tap, is a 1984 American rock music mockumentary comedy film written, scored by, and starring Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer. The film betrays the fictional British heavy metal band Spinal Tap. Directed by Reiner, the movie satirizes the wild and personal behavior and musical pretensions of hard rock and heavy metal bands, as well as other rockumentaries that were released around the same time. All of the dialogue in the film was improvised, and many of the scenes focus on trivial matters being blown way out of proportion, like in this scene that portrays a prima donna rock star backstage complaining about the size of a piece of bread. Look, this, this miniature bread, it's like, I've been working with this now for about half an hour, and I can't figure out, let's say I want to Mm -hmm. bite, right? You got this. You'd like bigger bread? Exactly. I yeah. don't understand how. You could it's like fold a... this then. I mean, you could well, fold no, it. then it's half the size. No, not the bread. No, you could fold the meat. You yeah, but then it, then it breaks bread. up. It breaks no, no, apart no, no, no. like you this. Put it on the bread like this, see? But then, if then you then keep it's... folding it, it keeps breaking, well, keep and then you'll, everything has to be folded, and yeah. then it's this. And I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this. Right. So then it's like this. But this doesn't work because then it's all. Because it hangs out like <laughs> Look, yeah. would you be holding no, this? No, I wouldn't want to eat. I wouldn't want to put no. it in my mouth. All right, A. Exhibit, no, right. exhibit A, right. and then we move right. on to this. Harry Shearer, Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKeon were given $10,000 to write the script. They made a 20-minute version of the film to better demonstrate the improvisation they had in mind. Several scenes from the demo are actually in the final movie. Here's director Rob Reiner. Chris and uh, and Michael, for years, had been improvising with these characters, these British rock and rollers, uh, in parties and stuff like that. They'd always been improvising, so uh, we said, "Well, let's do you know, we'll do we'll do a takeoff of these British rockers and we'll put them on, we'll put them in the TV show." And when we were doing the that that segment of the show, they'd improvise, you know, on the set while we were just waiting to you know do do a shot. And it was hysterical. They were in character. And we said, geez, it would be great to find a way to take these characters and do something more than just this little three-minute bit. And so that became kind of the beginnings of what ultimately became Spinal Tap. The faux documentary covers a 1982 United States concert tour by the fictional rock group Spinal Tap to promote their new album called Smell the Glove, interspersed with one-on-one -on -one interviews with the members of the group and footage of the group from previous periods in their fictitious careers. Here again is director Rob Reiner on developing the concept for the film with Harry Shearer, who plays bassist Derek Smalls in the mockumentary. Harry and I had an idea to do a, a film about roadies and what went on backstage in a rock and roll tour. We thought we could make fun and have some fun with it. And then a movie came, a name Roadie came out. We thought, okay, forget that. Meanwhile, Chris and, and, uh, and Michael had done a little short of these two rockers that f you know run into each other in the hotel room and they did it on tape and we kind of gravitated back towards each other and said gee let's 
kind of put this together and maybe we can, you know, make a whole movie about these characters and, and, and a tour and what goes on backstage and that kind of evolved in that way. In the late 1960s, Rob Reiner acted in bit roles in several television shows, including Batman, The Andy Griffith Show, and The Beverly Hillbillies. One of his first films, This Is Spinal Tap. Well, I mean, it wasn't a typical first-time director experience because, like I said, there's no script. And so, you know, it was all improvised and it was all shot like a documentary. So it wasn't, you know, like having to set up shots in a traditional way that a director would, you know, design a movie. I mean, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, improvising as we went along. We just had a basically art. We had a, an outline with an arc, you know, a very loose arc to the whole thing. And then we just kind of improvised the scenes and shoot it like a real tour on, you know, on band on tour and shoot a documentary and then kind of shaped it in the, in the cutting room. It took me nine months to cut that film. So basically the writing for the film was done in the cutting room. We shot for, you know, 25, 30 days, something like that. Uh, but we had a lot, tons and tons of footage. We had, you know, the first cut of the film was seven hours long. We had like, you know, four hours of a film and three hours of interview footage, just me interviewing them in all different, you know, places. So Reiner is the director of the actual film, who also plays the director of This Is Spinal Tap in the film. Reiner says his character was based on another director of a real rockumentary that was popular at the time. We also learn how the film was received by actual rock stars and critics alike. Well, my character is kind of loosely based on Martin Scorsese's character in The Last Waltz, where he was in the film. You know, he kind of put himself in the film, so uh, I call myself Marty DeBerge, which was kind of a cross between Marty Scorsese and... You know, De Sica and Bergman and Fellini and put them all together. They loved it. They loved it. I mean, they saw themselves. And, I, you know, I've talked to rockers over the years. And they've all seen it. And I remember one time when I was doing Princess Pride and Sting came in to meet me for a part. And he said he'd seen the movie like 50 times. He says, every time. He says, I look at it. He says, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And, you know, so many stories of people telling me they have worn out their their videos on bus and on tour on the bus. They throw it on all the time. They watch it. When it first came out, people thought it was a real band. And then people didn't understand why would I make a movie about a band that nobody had ever heard of, and that was so bad. You know, why would you? Why don't you make a movie about a good band like the Stones or something or Led Zeppelin or something like that? But um, they, I said they already made a movie about this Led Zeppelin. I said, no, it's like Saturday Night Live. You know, satire. You know, you make fun of it. Oh, okay, okay. It took a while for people to catch up to it and realize that it was a spoof. This is Spinal Tap was only a modest success upon its initial release. However, the film found greater success and a cult following after it was released on VHS. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the story of the first major Hollywood mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap, released this day in history in 1984 and as always all of our segments even the fun ones and the funny ones are brought to us by the great folks at hillsdale college where you can go to study and if you can't get to hillsdale hillsdale will come to you visit their online classes all 12 of them at hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu this is our american stories more on spinal tap after these messages
This is Our American Stories, and we now return to This is Spinal Tap, released on this day in history in 1984. Critics praised the film not only for its satire of the roller coaster lifestyles of rock stars, but also for its take on the nonfiction film genre. Even with a cameo from Billy Crystal, Spinal Tap still managed to trick many of its moviegoers into believing the band actually existed in real life. Even Ozzy Osbourne told Conan O'Brien that he thought This Is Spinal Tap was a documentary when he saw it in the theater. Did you go and see the movie Spinal Tap? Well, yeah, and what did you think of it? Well. Uh, the funny thing about Spinal Tap, when I went to see it, I was the only person in the audience that wasn't laughing because it really was like a documentary. So <laughs> but those things actually happened. I mean, everybody just goes, oh, number, th- number 11, that happened. <laughs> that happened when they got lost going to the stage. That happened. No, what you were that? lost going to the stage? Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the practical joker. When you go into these, these big shows, and it's got so-and-so, uh, so-and-so, this one, they've got gap attack arrows, right. and I'm always... To show changing, you which way to go. I'm always changing the arrows around, you know, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> so back in the foyer going, well, where's the <laughs> So you're sitting there, everyone's laughing, you, you're thinking... I'm going, 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 The actors are all competent musicians, and the soundtrack is actually them playing. Though Harry Shearer and three other actors have only been paid $81 for merchandise sales between 1984 and 2006. Shearer filed a $125 million lawsuit against the company that now owns the film, who claims the film was never profitable. In February of 2017, Shearer and co-stars Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, as well as the film's director Rob Reiner, joined the lawsuit seeking $400 million in damages. $81 for 22 years. Between 1989 and 2006, the corporations have said that total income from music sales was $98. Well, $98 is about enough to buy one miniature Stonehenge. The film is on view almost constantly. It was theatrically released twice and has had lives on VHS, beta, DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, and cable TV. And yet, for most of that time, according to Vivendi, it hasn't been profitable. Filing a claim like this one is neither fun nor easy. Going up against a major multinational is not nearly as enjoyable as playing too loud in Carnegie Hall. And yes, that's the same Harry Shearer that does about half the voices on The Simpsons, including Reverend Lovejoy and Principal Skinner. In case you didn't know, Spinal Tap even made an appearance on The Simpsons. All right! This morning, we were driving down Route 401. That's only four miles from my house! And we thought they knew how to rock in Shelbyville. But nobody rocks like Springfield. 
Spinal Tap are infamous for problems with their Stonehenge props. The most famous incident comes from the film in which the prop is undersized and nearly trampled by a dwarf or a little person, whatever you're supposed to call them nowadays. Here's Slash of Guns N' Roses fame with something rock stars call their own Spinal Tap moments. My favorite Spinal Tap moment, there was a gig that Guns N' Roses did in 1989 uh, the last show of a year and a half or two year tour that we did for Appetite for Destruction. And we were just shagged. And we, we were opening for NXS in Texas at Dallas Stadium. And it was uh, Ziggy Marley was on the bill, The Replacements, and uh, Iggy Pop. And it was, you know, outdoor thing. And we, we were just tired. We, we didn't get to sound check. And we thought, we'll just go out there and... and and just play and it was one of those gigs where i still have sort of nightmares about it where we just went out there and couldn't pull it together completely just fell apart couldn't hear what the other guy was doing everybody was just in a, in a, a completely different place and it was literally just horrible and i think we went on late and we left the stage early it started raining and it was just like just the most miserable gig and about a year later uh, I got some mail from the management office, and there was this envelope, and I opened it up, and it was a broken-and-a-half cassette of Appetite for Destruction, and some fan who was at that gig said, I'll never listen to you guys again. And I just, that was very Spinal Tap. As the story goes, the band was started by childhood friends David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell during the 1960s. Originally named The Originals, then the new originals, to distinguish themselves from an existing group of the same name, they settled on the name The Thamesmen, finding success with their rhythm and blues single, Gimme Some Money. Stop wasting my time. You know what I want. You know what I need. Oh, maybe you don't. Do I have to come right flat out and tell you? They changed their name again to Spinal Tap and enjoyed limited success with the Flower Power Anthem. Listen what the flower people say. Ah, listen, it's getting louder every day. Like a bolt out of the blue Ah, listen It could be calling now for you Ultimately, the band became successful with heavy metal and produced several albums. The group was joined eventually by bassist Derek Smalls, played by Harry Shearer, and keyboardist Viv Savage, and a series of drummers, each whom mysteriously died in odd circumstances, including spontaneous human combustion and choking to death on the vomit of an unknown person. Their current drummer is Mick Shrimpton. Now, during the Flower People period, who was your drummer? 
Stumpy's replacement, Peter James Bond, he also died in mysterious circumstances. Uh, we were playing uh, a uh, festival, blues. jazz blues festival. Where was that? Well, blues I, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. Was Miss the I, it was the uh, it was in the Isle Isle of Lucy. Lucy. The yeah. Isle of Lucy. Isle of Lucy. Jazz blues festival. And uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light. And that was it. Nothing was left. It was, his face. Well, there was. It's that, true. This, this truly did happen. There was a little green globule on his drum seat. Like a stain, really. It was, it was a small stain. stain in a globule, yeah. actually. And you know, was, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Yeah. This is Spinal Tap, the fictitious, over-the-top rock band from the early 80s that became so popular, they became an actual band with albums, posters, t-shirts, and rabid group followers. This comedy almost single-handedly created the category of mockumentary and inspired hundreds of films and TV shows that use a similar approach. TV shows like The Office or Parks and Rec, movies like Best in Show or Borat, might not have been made if not for this particular comedy. Since its release, Spinal Tap has received universal acclaim from critics and is widely regarded as one of the best films of 1984. It currently holds a 95% certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and in 2002, This Is Spinal Tap was deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. This is Our American Stories. And that's the story of This Is Spinal Tap. And I can't help but just laugh every time I even say the words, This Is Spinal Tap. And if you ever get a chance, I urge you, we beg you, if you haven't seen this movie, go and see it. It's Rob Reiner's best work. And Rob Reiner's done some great American movies. This day in history, in 1984, Spinal Tap was released as always. Are this days in history brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College? This is our American stories. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look right across the board, oh. eleven, oh, eleven, and most of eleven, and amps go up to ten. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not ten. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at ten. You're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere. Exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? I'll put it up to eleven. Eleven. Exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to eleven. is our American stories and today we have one of our favorite regular features with marriage coach Deb Wolniak. This week she brings us the story of Jennifer and Justin, a younger couple with a heart to help others see the beauty of marriage even through the difficulty. The Murphs begin by telling us the story of how they met. The way that we met, we debate about this, right? 
we uh, we met at a conference that uh, I was facilitating, nerdy conference on uh, postmodern missiology. But uh, she walked up and said, "I have no idea what in the world this guy just said. Can you explain it?" And so I did, and um, I guess that was intellectual love at first sight. But uh, <laughs> and then a few weeks later, uh, she shows up at church, and this was a problem because I was a college pastor. I was a single college well, pastor. Well, I church. actually thought Justin was married because yeah. he was the college pastor at the church, and he, you know, he wore like pleated khaki pants, and so I thought, I, it wasn't, I did think he was smart, but it wasn't necessarily love at first sight, because I thought he was married. That's a, that's a good caveat. So yeah. he shows up at church, and I'm like, this is horrible, because if you come to the church where I'm serving, you're one of my college students now, and that's creepy, and I can't date you. But about two weeks later, the best thing happened, and our executive pastor walks in and says, listen, there's this bright, young a uh, college student we're looking at it, maybe bringing her on staff, kind of help you out with, with the women in the college ministry and kind of do some stuff with the women's ministry in the church. Her name's Jennifer Cannon. What do you think? So, of course, selfishly, I'm like, oh, she's phenomenal. She's intelligent. She's smart. She's funny. You absolutely should hire her right away. And so they did. And about 11 hours later, we were dating. So 11 months later, we were walking down the aisle, and uh, this May will make 11 years. We, we have four daughters. And he's quite the ladies' man, out an eight-year-old. It just means I've given another winning an argument. That's all. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, eight, six, four, and two, all girls. Our little princesses. So you guys are in the millennial generation, correct? We're right on the, the beginning end of millennial. Marriage in previous generations, um, they did things very traditionally. They they got married. Uh, they you know started a career. They had children. Millennials these days have done it quite opposite. Uh, many of them are delaying or even abandoning marriage altogether. Justin and I did it a little different. Uh, we went the traditional route. Uh, every time I had a, a baby, I started another degree, and um, we made it work. I mean, I don't think that I was, I would have been able to go as far in my education and that, you know, if I wasn't married, Justin's been my biggest cheerleader. Uh, but millennials don't see it that way. Uh, they really I uh, think that marriage is going to keep them from any type of success. You look at the numbers. I mean, in 1970, the average age of marriage was 23. The average age of home ownership was 25. Today, that's 30 and 35, respectively. So when when we got married, at, she was 21, I was 24. We were the first in our in our friend group to actually get married, and uh, we have friends still to this day from that same group of friends that are still single. And, uh, you know, they're pursuing education and they're pursuing their career and they're doing good. And they're like, gosh, I, I want to have kids now, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm middle management or I'm moving up the ladder in my company. And for me to, to try to find a, a wife or a husband and, and start having kids, it would mean sacrificing my career. And what's been interesting for us is we honestly, it's, it's not been that case for us. It seems like, like Jen said, not only with the education, but, Every kid we've had, it's just, um, you know, it seems like more doors open, better jobs open, better pay comes, and part of that's just, I guess, part of growing up. But uh, we have not experienced in our own life the the downfall of marriage, quote-unquote, that a lot of people, uh, you know, believe the lie of, that if, if you settle down, you're going to limit your opportunities. And so when I met Justin, I did not want to see this fail. 
And so we work really hard. You know, we, the odds are against us. We come from divorced homes. You know, we have student loan debt. You know, we had children young. If you look at statistics, people would literally say, you're going to fail. Um, but we choose not to. We choose to continue to work hard. And that's where um, Millennials for Marriage was birthed, was out of that desire to see marriage succeed, you know, among millennials. The Murphs go on to talk about the importance of commitment in their marriage. Well, when he asked me to marry him, I didn't have to think twice. It was, I mean, why didn't you ask sooner? And um, I was, commitment wasn't something that uh, was a dirty word to me. Like in many millennials, they don't want to use the word commitment. They don't want to be tied down to anything. They want the you know, the, the contract that you can get out of quickly. That wasn't the case with Justin and I. We made a commitment from the beginning. If we choose to say yes to marriage, then we're not even going to use the D word. And Justin and I, we've been through some hard things. You know, we've mm-hmm. lost uh, a baby. We've lost jobs. We have um, moved 11 times. And throughout our whole journey, we decided that we were going to go and we're going to conquer life together even if it gets tough. And so I think it was making that decision from the beginning that divorce was never an option. I, I would add one thing that when, when we were engaged, um, there was a day where she, she hands me back the ring and she says, listen, I'm not calling our engagement off, but I need to know that I know that I know with 100% certainty that you're the man that, that God has for me to marry. And I said, okay, so are you, are you breaking up with me? No, 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 I'm not doing that. I need to take some time because here's the thing. When things get hard, and they're definitely going to get hard, I need to be able to look back to this moment and say, nope, I heard, I have total confidence that this is the right man for me, that this is who God wants me to marry, and that's what's going to sustain me in the moments when I'm ready to choke you. And <laughs> I thought, oh, Yes, okay. when the stuff hits the fan... I go yeah. back and say, no, no, I, I, I know and, that you're the man for me. And 24 hours, she came back, grabbed the ring, and said, all right, let's get this thing done. Let's do it. And, and that, that has really been a defining moment in our relationship because, yeah, life happens. You know, Justin and I, we do five-minute dates every single day. Um, we have four kids. We work. We're professionals. Um, we're busy. And so we make sure that we set aside, set aside time to really connect with each other every single day. Uh, so that's one thing that we do. Another thing that we did from the very beginning of our marriage is that we had people outside of our family that we spoke with when we had issues. We never went to our in-laws. I don't think that our in-laws can be very objective about, um, about the things that we're going through Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is that um, marriage, you know, you hear the adage, you know, it takes, you know, it takes both people, you know, working, it's a 50-50. And I'm like, no, 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 it's actually 100-100. You, you both have to pull equal weight. You both have to be all in. We're running out the door this morning. We've got the kids in the car. She turns and says, hey, can you grab the, the, uh, the trash out of the trash can? And I'm like, oh, there's a good chance the kids have probably stuffed a bunch of stuff in it. If I pull it out, it'll get all over me. I'm in a suit. I've got to get out the door. We're in a hurry. <laughs> and yet, you know, I very easily could have just said, um, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, honey. I totally forgot and just got in the car. That would have been a lie. But uh, <laughs> instead, no, I pull it out and stuff falls on the floor and picking it back up, putting it in. And finally, I get up to the car and 
you know, she's happy. I've done my part. Sorry, I didn't put the trash can or trash bag back in the can, honey. So we, we actually have this thing and uh, that we joke around with couples and we say, listen, guys, I'm going to give you the biggest tip to a successful marriage, and this is it. Um, experience and learn chore play. My love language is after I had kids. You know, I used to be, I love touch. After having kids, I'm so bombarded with touch. The best way, Justin can um, encourage a beautiful night in the bedroom is through chore play. You know, when he does the dishes, there's not a sexier-looking man than whenever a man's doing the dishes. I mean, I'm like, man, wow. It does make a big difference, you know, when you don't have to carry the weight of everything at home by yourself. Well, that's a tip for all of us, huh? Got to think of that. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our Marriage on the Mind segment continues with Deb Walniak after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. We love this segment, and we just heard from the Murphs, Jennifer and Justin, and now we're about to hear from Deb Walniak, and that's our marriage coach, not our marriage counselor, folks, our marriage coach. And Deb, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. And by the way, I think everybody who was listening, every guy listening, and even every woman listening was thinking, wow, her love language is her man in a smock doing the dishes. And let me tell you, if that works for you guys, give it a shot. Oh, if you haven't tried it, give it a shot. Exactly I'm right. You. Yeah, and you even shared offline that this is something that you do for your wife. Is that right? It is. Actually, I do. And I've, I've learned that you pick up the, the slack on the chores and you got a lot happier marriage. Oh, it's so true. Well, and, and here's the thing. Every household is different. Sometimes the man is more home than the woman and vice versa. But if you look at your spouse and look at where it is they find some of that stress and they're carrying that extra burden, make a mental note of it and stop them and say, hey, honey, I'm going to take care of it. Maybe it's that, you know, screaming child that's having that temper tantrum that just went on too long and they're about ready to be like, honey, let me take care of this one. I'm not kidding you. That is the best way to serve your spouse and support your team because as you heard from this particular interview, team is so important. They're fighting for that. And I love how this couple set up such a healthy relationship from their single days to their dating days into their marriage. You can see a consistency throughout that, can't you? Yeah. What's this five-minute date that we're talking about? So the five-minute date is a really good concept. I like how they practice it and brought it up and are teaching other couples to do that. That five-minute date is allowing yourself that that moment, that time, and it's going to be different for every couple. Sometimes it's in the morning, sometimes it's in the evening, but you have to have it away from the kids. Maybe they're asleep and you're having that five-minute date. It could be as simple as, how was your day? 
and listen and vice versa? Or what's important for me to know as I go into this day? Is there something that I can even think about for you, pray for you on, run an errand? What is the critical thing that's going to make your day better? And find ways to serve your spouse. And now some people get really scared when I say the word serve. Oh my goodness, what does that mean? Am I committing to a ton of things? No. It could be one thing that takes 10 seconds that makes a world of difference in a 24-hour day. The question is, is have you taken that moment to find out what that is? Because that thing is going to communicate love to that spouse even louder than your words. The actions that you take are so crucial to your marriage. No doubt. And Justin and Jennifer talked about at one point the effect of 11 different marriages amongst their parents and close family. And what kind of effect did that have, Deb, on their marriage? What kind of effect did those other relationships have on their relationship? Right. In that extended interview, they shared their heart, and she did, Jennifer did, about the fact that you know what? This is something, our history, our family tree has broken branches. We have broken marriages throughout that time. And it does affect the children. I know people want to say, oh, they'll get over it. They're young. They'll get, yeah, yeah, they will. They'll become resilient. But it does impact their life and their decision making. So what Jennifer said to herself is, I need to model myself after some couple that has sustained the course, that has a healthy relationship, and what does that look like? And that ended up being, I believe it was her aunt and uncle, don't quote me on that, but she looked at them and she said, that is the couple I want to model myself after. So she ended up looking for a future spouse that had some of those same qualities that the man in the household had, and when you know, her future husband came into the picture, it was just super evident. She had thought about it before, she planned and prayed, and when that became came to be, it was very evident that that was where they were going to go, but it didn't end there. That role modeling that she experienced in that family household was brought into her household, and she was able, along with her husband, even at a young age, to be able to say, listen, we're going to hit the skid sometimes. We're going to have to move a lot. We're going to lose jobs. You know, you don't know these things when you make that lifelong commitment, but you're going to have it happen. So who is your role model that you can either go to as a mentor, hopefully outside your family, let's have that caveat here in a second, but who can you go as a mentor to coach me through this situation, or who is that role model and how did they handle it? And let me tell you, that advice about going outside of your family lines for mentoring, coaching advice, maybe even counseling, is so critically important because you need that clear eye and vision into the situation and someone who is not going to get emotionally charged to either the wife's side or the husband's side. Yeah, I mean, in the end, you can't help but have a Hatfield and McCoy thing go on no matter how hard you can try. And by the way, there are exceptions. I know in my family, uh, my brother uh, had a divorce and we loved the we loved his wife and there were times when we were taking her side and it was getting him really mad like how could you side with her what about me mm-hmm. and but you know and i think that can happen but in general deb it's much more of a minefield than than normal talk, just talk, dig a little deeper on that because i actually think family exacerbates the problem and i think the more you confide in your family when things are going bad you build up this terrible reservoir then the people start to hate your spouse. Mm-hmm. And then all the time he's good. Well, they're not hearing those stories. They're only mm-hmm. hearing the stories about when he or she was bad. 
and talk oh. about that because I, I often will tell my friends, stop sharing the negative stuff with your family unless you're okay. going to be really adamant about sharing the positive stuff too. Right, right. And I'm guilty of that. I can raise my hand and I can say in my young married life, I made the mistake of getting upset at my husband, but venting it out and talking it out with other family members and not him. Now, is that fair? No, that's not fair. And that's probably one of the most hurtful things you can do to your spouse. If you find yourself doing that right now, stop it. Stop. I'm serious. This has got to get even in your lane, and you must respect yourself and get some help outside of the family. You're going to feel a lot better about it, and things are going to get resolved faster. But let me tell you what. One of the things that parents have to do with older adult children as they're in those dating years and as they're going to either extend the schooling or right into career, the one thing that they have to be very, very careful of is not to put those young people on a timeline. Um, you're going to hear this a lot from people kind of that in-between stage. I'm not married, but I kind of graduated from college, and, you know, I feel this pressure. You're right. Sometimes we do. Well, when are you getting, when are you, like, who are you seeing? When are you getting engaged? When are you buying a house? When do you have children? I mean, okay, people, we don't have 80 million finish lines, and let's just take it one step at a time and enjoy the moments that we're at. Why? We need to become the strongest single person that we can be, knowing ourselves, loving ourselves, and growing in our career and our goals so that we fully know when that right person comes along and we go, oh, my gosh, there they are. We can talk about those things honestly and be able to build a relationship that supports those goals with each other as a team. And team is a big word I want you guys to underline in your head right now because if you're not operating as a team, you can't be a team. And it's so it sounds so simple, but it's hard to do. But what do you need to do in order to move closer to team? Take that five-minute date that we talked about just momentarily ago. Take that time to do some self-reflection, maybe some journaling and say, hey, this is where I think we're at. And I want to move closer, take that one step toward you and that one step toward you. And before you know it, you're back together again, trying to get those schedules in sync. Maybe it's as simple as that. Or maybe it's complicated as, you know what, we've had a problem for years, and now I feel like I need to take the step and take the courage to go to the difficult spot with you and talk about the thing that's been plaguing our marriage for so long. And so many people end up faking it till they make it, and a lot of times don't make it, unfortunately. So I really, really am encouraging people to focus on your partner, focus on those needs, be honest in conversation, and just give yourself even the five-minute date just to check in. And Deb, finally, in just about a minute here, what is it they're doing to help millennials? What's that millennials for marriage? What's that all about? Oh, this is such a good thing. I'm telling you, a lot of millennials are wanting to get married at some point, even though they're pushing it off to their 30s. They want to have children at some point and still asking the question, how does this happen so much later than others? And with all the pressures, these guys have put together Millennials for Marriage, not only to be role models themselves to a generation that's asking these questions, how does this work? And can it work? And can I trust somebody again? But they're also supporting millennials through some of the work they're doing. Check it out online. 
get into the things that they're doing if you have questions on this. And I encourage older folks to go as well. Why? Because we can learn a ton of things from this couple, and they are speaking absolute truth into the situation. Well, thanks as always, Deb, our marriage coach, Marriage on the Mind. And thank you to Jennifer and Justin Murph. And by the way, the millennials I've met, I think a lot of them are scared. I think another whole bunch of them have experienced divorce And so that makes them even more frightened. And then it's the economy. A lot of them don't feel on solid ground. They don't feel on solid footing. And last but not least, I heard a psychological expert talk about the fact that we're living to 90 years old now. And so in the block of three spans of life, youth, middle-aged, and old, when you were 60, it was 20, then 20 to 40, then 40 to 60. He said, now it's 30, 60, 90. And people are Mm -hmm. planning that and planning that in their heads. So that, I thought, was really fascinating. But always, great discussions. And thanks so much for joining us, Deb, as always. Thank you, Lee. Take care. This is Our American Stories, Marriage on the Mind. And this is Our American Stories. And we like to talk about everything here on this show. Sports, art, movies, stories of love, life, marriage, and business. We profile entrepreneurs whenever we can. Titans of the business world, small guys, and everything in between. And gals. Fastest growing segment of the American economy and small business is women. More and more women starting their own business, equaling men. That no one would have thought 20 or 30 years ago. And one of our favorite shows, because we love television, about business is Shark Tank. And it's on ABC every Friday night. It's on CNBC on an almost endless loop at night alongside The Prophet and a couple of other very good shows. There's a new one with a great restaurateur out of Houston that's just terrific. And you learn a lot about the business world a lot more than you learn almost anywhere else, certainly in most colleges, than you do at Shark Tank, and it's very entertaining. And so we would love to just look back at some of the best and the worst of Shark Tank, and here's one of the worst pitches of all time. Up into the tank stepped Aaron McDaniel with his company, Tycoon, a real estate crowdfunding platform. Well, he hit the studios of Shark Tank to pitch this young platform to the Sharks, and in this episode... Mark Cuban is out in less than 60 seconds. I'm seeking $50,000 in exchange for 5% of my company. For literally hundreds of years, the most proven way to consistently build wealth has been through investing in real estate. Unfortunately, traditional real estate investing is difficult, intimidating, and expensive. 
The best deals are only offered to the super wealthy behind closed doors, helping the rich get richer and locking the rest of us out. What's wrong with that? <laughs> now, you have the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of an exciting new business that will change real estate investing forever. Tycoon Real Estate is a crowd investing platform that allows everyday people to invest in real estate for as little as $1,000. I hate it. I'm out. Ouch. Wow. Ouch. I smell jail time. I smell jail time. Oh, by the way, what's the company worth, guys? I got it. 1.2 million. 1.2. Wait a second. 50K, 5%. Oh, I thought he said 60. Sorry. No, he said Sorry. 50. All right, all right. 1 million? 1 million. All right. Bingo. And by the way, how that works is for 5% of the company at 50K, you go to a 20 times multiplier to get to the million, to get to the 100% stake. That means he was going to be selling 20 people 5% shares at 50,000. That's a million. So this guy was valuing his company at a million dollars. And Mark Cuban goes, a million bucks? I'm out of here. This isn't even an idea yet. McDaniel goes on to explain how his company works while Mark Cuban continues to just give him grief. So first we go to Tycoon's website. Once you're here, you can look through our list of investment opportunities. There are a variety of different types, from residential to commercial, each with their own unique investment objectives. So as an example, this one here is a marquee retail property that's part of a large commercial complex just outside of the Manhattan area. All you have to do is enter the amount of money you'd like to invest, go through a simple online process, and once the investment goal is met, you're a real estate investor. Then you can sit back and enjoy the profits you get from the appreciation and the cash flows of the property. So Sharks, we're on the brink of an exciting new era where literally anyone can be a real estate tycoon. How do I get my money back? How do I get the return? Boom, boom, boom. Give the guy a cigar. Give a guy a cigar. Because that is the question. And this guy tries to answer Robert's question and goes on to answer a few more from the other Sharks. So, I mean, ultimately, this is, this is a business to scale in a big way. No, but walk me through a single model. Sure. I invest in that building in New Jersey. I give you $10,000. Sure. I assume I own some percentage of it. That's correct. I assume that building is taking on so much rent. I'm making money. Yes. Then the building gets sold one day. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming I make a return on my 10000 equal to my value of the overall building. Right. So, depending on... the value of the building at the time that I invest? The, what we refer to as the deal maker, the developer who is looking to raise money for the project. So, there's a lead developer that is in charge of the investment. That's correct. Are you taking... A fee. So what we take is a management fee. How much is it? One point two five percent of the amount raised. Wow, that's not bad, or is it? Mister Wonderful asks McDaniel about alternatives to his platform. Mark Cuban continues to balk at the pitch. Let's say I want to invest in real estate. I can go online to one of the big players, Fidelity or Schwab. I can buy a REIT. A REIT is a real estate investment trust, Mm -hmm. so that people can get diversification in real estate. Total liquidity, I can buy and sell it any day I want. I'm going to get my yield of 4.5%, mm-hmm. and I have 5,000 properties inside the REIT. REITs aren't sexy. Nobody brags about REITs. That's so horrible. But Aaron, that is who so cares horrible. about sexy when that it comes so to saving money? Because that is you wrong talk to any, so talk to ways, any real estate investor, and one of the main reasons they talk about investing is that physical, emotional connection they have to the building. I think people have a physical, emotional connection to their life savings. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Robert, in or out? I think when you're dealing with people's life savings, mm-hmm. and I think this attracts the kind of person who wants a greater return for their retirement, I think you've got to be conservative with your money. Be risky at work. Be safe with your investments. And, and to that point, there, there's a... Okay. Lori, in or out? I don't like the idea of investing in real estate online with a bunch of other people I don't know. That seems to me risky and uncomfortable. And for that simple reason, I'm out. So what about the real estate girl? Barbara Corcoran, in or out? I think the Achilles heel in this, and it comes from years of investing in real estate, is your lead investor. 
who is the lead investor? How smart are they? How do they work the angles? What kind of financing do they provide? And I believe that that's the key to any great real estate investment. Mm -hmm. This is a mystery investor here. How do I know he's got a good eye? How do I believe his projections? Too spooky and frankly unfair to someone who isn't well informed in the real estate business and experience. That's right, and that's why we do the vetting to make sure we only work with top people. You gotta trust the opinion of who's behind it. And that's what's scary and that's why I'm definitely out. Wow, and that's a woman who knows a lot about real estate. Mr. Wonderful, in or out? You have something here that sounds interesting to me. And so here, I'm gonna tell you what I wanna do with you. There's going to be thousands of sites like Tycoon that emerge. They have no brand. Just think of the name, Tycoon. Tycoon. Please. Tycoon, what does it say to a small investor? It's a ripoff name. And Mr. Wonderful continues. You have no brand. Tycoon means nothing to anybody. <laughs> I do have a brand. I have a track record of success. Mm -hmm. I'll give you $50,000. I want 50% I'm going to rebrand this thing. I wouldn't go anywhere higher than 10% of that. Bummer. You think I'm going to put my name? He doesn't I don't, want I, I'm not asking for your name. But this you have nothing. Correct. I have a proven model that raised a billion dollars in 36 months. My name. Got to decide, Aaron. What do you want to do? No, right. so he's saying no. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I forgot your name already. I'm out. Thank you. <laughs> and shortly after this episode aired, five real estate crowdfunding platforms joined together to purchase Tycoon Real Estate following the episode Traffic to Tycoon site rocketed to a point the site could no longer handle the load of traffic. The sharks can be right, the sharks can be wrong. This is Lee Habib, our Shark Tank episode on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about history, and that's why we do our This Day in History every day, and it's brought to you by Hillsdale College, the best place in the country to study history, to study the Constitution, arts, the liberal arts, and a great place to send your kids, and by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, or if you've already gone to college or never gone to college, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. There's one on the Constitution right now as it relates to modern-day politics and presidential power that is a must-see. It's terrific. It's like going to college without having to go to college and no grades. Actually, that's how I was in college anyway. I really didn't care about the grades. But uh, we love to do sports, and we love sports, and we love music. And on this day in history, well, the great Will Chamberlain broke and shattered the scoring record for the NBA, one that has never been challenged since, not even close. Nineteen sixty-two, Will Chamberlain of the Philadelphia Warriors had a season for the ages, the most dominant year by a player in the NBA, if not any sport. Chamberlain averaged over fifty points and twenty-five rebounds per game. His most incredible performance came on the night of March second, as the Warriors met the New York Knicks in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Get to Hershey about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. There were no hotels for us to go to and stay in because we didn't do those kind of things in those days. We went straight to the arena where we had to wait around for five or six hours for the game. But having them be in this arena, they had a shooting gallery, a little penny arcade, so some of the guys went there, and I started shooting rifles and so on and so forth. 
and I couldn't miss anything. So if there was ever a clue that I was going to have a high day, this was definitely the, the clue. Rogers inside to Adels to Chamberlain. He's got it. History being written tonight in Hershey. The big man has broken the record and he's gone for bar. We're just conjecturing here how many can he make. The guesses are running as high as 100. I think uh, when you got him somewhere in late third quarter, fourth quarter, Dave Zinkoff, who was the announcer, was now starting to call it point. On the PA, they're announcing the new record at 79. And during the announcement, Chamberlain goes right ahead through the announcement and makes a foul. They're still making the announcement. He makes another foul. Chamberlain didn't even listen to it. He just made two straight fouls. He now has 81 points. Now he's going out. That's 83 or that's 85. Then I think there was a conscious effort to try to get him behind. Uh, late in the game, I got the ball and uh, in the, uh, just short of the corner, and uh, Richie Guerin uh, came flying at me, ready to, uh, about to tackle me. At the same moment that Will bumped his man off his hip, gave me the signal, which was woo. And uh, for that second, he was open, and I got the ball to Will before Guerin hit me. Rogers throws long to Chamberlain. He's got it. He's trying to get up. He shoots. No good. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Chamberlain. He shoots up. No good. In and out. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Luckwood. Into Chamberlain. the game 169 to 147 for a crowd of only 4,124, although many more claim to be there. At the end of his epic night, a tired Will Chamberlain actually hitched a ride back to his New York apartment with several Nick players. And so I, I fall asleep immediately. I'm just really, really tired. But every time they come, through, put a bit come to a toll booth, you know, they stop and I'd wake up. And I can hear these guys talking. They're saying, can you believe that SOB got 100 points against us? And then I kind of like fall back to sleep again, and then I wake up again, and they spent the whole trip talking about the 100 points and how they, I should be ashamed of myself, what I did to them. My, my, yeah, my, my, really my, embarrassed. Yeah, you know, and so when I got to, when I got to my apartment, they, they let, let me off, I said to them, hey, thanks, guys, but I'm really sorry about that 100 points. I didn't mean to mean it. <laughs> <laughs> it was an achievement like none other in basketball history, but one of many Will Chamberlain would author during his career. Still... For a long time, Wilt could get up that other basketball mountain and win a championship. Over his first seven seasons in the league, the Celtics won every title. And the Celtics, they have done it again. I know that frustrated Wilt. But when he finally did win with the 76ers in 67, it was in typical Wilt fashion. With a team not just great, but historically great with more wins at that time than any team in league history. And then five years later, his Lakers team won even more games, putting together a 33-game win streak, the longest of all time. The Los Angeles Lakers are the greatest winning team in the history of basketball. There's always some amazing number attached to him. You know, 100 points, 50 points a game, now he's on a team winning 33 straight games. It's almost like you imagine him going home at night and thinking, 
what next? What, what would be a good number? And then he'd go out and do it. He played a game against the Detroit Pistons. In the game, he blocked 26 shots. On the 55 rebound game, how about that? Against Bill Russell. Wilt won seven scoring titles. He won nine shooting titles. He won 11 rebound titles. And then he left the league in assists one year. When he was in the latter part of his career, the news media or somebody would walk up to him and say, oh, you can't score anymore. 50, 60, and then he'd go back to passing the ball and whatever. And if you challenged him, that just took him to another level in terms of, okay, I'll do this, I'll do that. It's not possible for any human being to do the kinds of things that he was able to do. In 1973, Wilt walked away from the NBA, but his presence will continue to loom over the game. As we sit here right now, Wilt owns over 90 records in the NBA, and he hasn't played in the NBA in the last 40 years. Will anyone ever score 100 points in an NBA game again? I suppose it could theoretically happen. But will there ever be another Will Chamberlain? Absolutely not. Part fable, all real. And a legend everyone wanted to be a part of. I have a few big stories I tell them to get a little bigger, like the fish stories. Well, this is the one true story that I might, must tell you. There was a little over 4,000 people there at the game, but I have at least 50,000 people who have told me, oh yeah, you know, I was there when you scored the 100 points. I said, oh yeah? Yeah, yeah, you know, I live in New York City, you know, so my father's coming to the garden, you know, saying, so, you, know, you know, some people would say Philadelphia. No one ever says Hershey, Pennsylvania, tells me that story. But I think is what they're saying to you is that we remember you, Will, and the thing we remember the most about you was that 100-point game. On yeah. This, on this day in history, thank you, Buck, Buck O'Neill, always helping in and chiming in. A hundred points. My goodness. Imagine that. 50 points a game, 25 rebounds in a season. And he led the NBA in scoring his first seven seasons in a row and led the NBA in rebounding 11 of his 14. It's just crazy. 30, the 30 best regular season scoring performances of all time, 20 of which are owned by Will Chamberlain. I don't think there's dominance in a sport like that ever. But here's the thing about Wilt, when they were saying he could do anything. Well, you know, he got bored with basketball and he took up volleyball. <laughs> He's in the Hall of Fame, Whoa. the Volleyball Hall of Fame. Yeah, people don't know that. He joined the Seattle Smashers. And imagine having a guy, 7'1", who could high jump. Oh, six foot six. He smashed collegiate records when he was at the University of Kansas. Wow. Get this. He was bored when he was at Kansas. So as a junior, he quit. But you couldn't go into the NBA until you graduated college. What did he do? Joined the Harlem Globetrotters, back when this was one of the great basketball teams in the world. And the average NBA player was making 10000 a year. Wilt was signed $65,000 as a senior. The life of Wilt Chamberlain. A big day in his life. 100 points. The closest anyone's come in the NBA is the low 70s. Elgin Baylor did it. Michael Jordan did it. And, of course, Kobe Bryant did it. We covered that for you. And one of the most 
remarkable performances of a modern-day forward. But the modern-day center, that was Will Chamberlain, and in fact, one of the only players who forced a rule change. That wider lane in the NBA compared to high school, those extra feet, they did that because of Wilt. Because he was so big, he could just lean over everybody from outside the key without having the three-second violation. The man changed the rules. He scored 100 points in a game. And on this day in history, we celebrate the great Wilt Chamberlain's performance in Hershey, Pennsylvania, not Madison Square Garden, and not Philadelphia. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Greg. This is Our American Stories, and we love sharing stories with you, particularly from our loyal listeners. But before we do, and we have a really good one, it's time for Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. (laughs) It's a good thing the Dr. Seuss books come with pictures, because otherwise I'd have no clue what he was talking about. The most suspicious thing you can bring on an airplane is a parachute. Kim Jong-un must really look strange to the people of North Korea since he's the only overweight person in the entire country. Hurricanes are becoming so powerful and violent that they should be named after bad guys, not just random names pulled out of thin air. Hurricane Patricia doesn't sound nearly as scary as Hurricane Hitler. When I drive with my left hand, the lives of the people in my car are held by something I can't even write my name with. The question, where are you, has probably never been asked in sign language. The two main characters of the show VeggieTales are a tomato and a cucumber. Neither are technically vegetables. The tallest person on Earth has been the same height as every person on Earth at some point in his life. A birth control pill pack is like an advent calendar for a woman's period. I bet giraffes don't even know what farts smell like. If self-driving cars kick in fast enough, women in Saudi Arabia may never be able to drive. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. My car is eight years old and just hit 186,000 miles. So it took my car eight years to travel as far as light does in one second. Condoms are one of the most environmentally friendly things invented by man. A single one has the potential to eliminate the carbon emissions of an entire human over the course of their lifetime. What if our use of emojis gradually becomes so extensive that we actually circle back to writing in hieroglyphics? (laughs) What if hieroglyphics are ancient emojis used by the Egyptians? Warm beer and cold coffee are both the same temperature. When you want to make sure a piece of paper doesn't get folded, you put it in something called a folder. I wonder if cats think that we're cleaning our ice cream. The only time I've ever used my panic button on my car keychain is when I accidentally pressed it, causing me to panic. If you're over 30 years old, you were alive before every dog in the world. Shower thoughts. <laughs> 
<laughs> well done, Jesse. Well, well done. done. <laughs> and now, as we to- as we promised, a story from one of our listeners. And today we hear from Stephen Murray, who sent us this deeply personal story. Let's take a listen. My name is Stephen, and uh, I'm going to give you a little detail of how my life has taken a 180, they say. Anyhow, when I was growing up, I was always the young man that was always the last one to be picked because I was fat and I had no abilities to really do anything in life, and everybody knew that. So when they had uh, everybody line up to be picked, uh, like on a baseball or football team, I was always the last one to be picked. And uh, the last guy that would pick me said, no, nah, I don't want him. You take him. Now, that, that's the type of life that I had for growing up through school and things of that nature. And as I started getting older, um, I got into the drinking and the drugging because that was my friend. It never give me any issues except keep me where where I thought I would be. And then the girls came along because you have the booze and the dope and you thought you had a hold of life. Well, through that time, uh, I knew I knew the truth because my parents always embraced that. I mean, I had a wonderful home life and everything, but I seemed to struggle. And uh, my folks always took me to Sunday school, but I I don't know. It just didn't didn't resonate with me. But anyhow, as I grew up, the booze and the dope and the girls always seemed to hang and be part of my life. And I went to school, but I never really learned anything, so to say, that would Im- impact me and allow me to prosper in life. And with that, I, I continued in the booze and the dope. And as I got older, I got into more heavier drugs. And uh, my older brother, Ed, he would grow weed uh, from... 800 to 1,000 plants a year, and he had a really wild lifestyle. Well, one day I went over and picked up a, a bag of dope, cocaine, and I was driving home, and I saw my brother in a distance standing with a man who I knew knew Jesus, not religion. He had a relationship with Christ. And as I was going out, I pulled over the side of the road a little town and rescue there where we lived, and sure enough, he was sharing Jesus with my brother because we used to party together. And as I was listening, my inner man, my spirit, my soul was listening to what this man had to say. My flesh was telling me, let's go to the house because I had the dope. But my inner man was tuning in, and he was hearing the truth. So I embraced my brother and left. And as I got to my home about four or five miles away, as I was pulling into the driveway of I had that truck, uh, four-wheel drive Bonanza, that had the large gas gauge and the large speedometer. Maybe the older folks would know what I'm talking about. And as I reached down to turn off my ignition, the, the gas gauge was sitting on empty. And as I was turning off the ignition, the Spirit of the Living God started speaking to my inner man, my soul. He says, Stephen, that's your life. It's empty. I'm thinking, wow, how can it be empty? I have a pocket full of dope, and I got money and girls and place to live. I'm doing good, good job. And as I'm sitting there, the evil one, the devil, whoever you want to call him, he starts rolling in the cab of that truck. He says, Stephen, you're a drunk and a druggie and a screw-up. This is your life. Accept it. And just like I'm talking to somebody, I, I heard it. 
And as I'm sitting there, the Spirit of the living God starts speaking to my heart again. says, Stephen, if you let me into your life, I'm going to get you off empty, but you have to open up the door to your heart. The doorknob's on the inside. I thought, wow, this is this is real. So I got out of my truck, and I went straight into the restroom at my house, the bathroom, and I took the bag of cocaine out, and I flushed it. I knew right then if I didn't make that decision, I would not like the outcome because I knew without a doubt this was the truth. And I got into my refrigerator and started pouring out all the booze and all the beer, got into my cabinets and started pouring everything out that had a hold of me. The pornography went out. Everything went out the back door. Took the foil off the windows because it was a flop house. I, I liked it dark in there because once you get the party and scene going, you didn't want the sunlight to come up to shut you down. So I took everything and I threw it out the back door and I got on my knees. And when I come back in there, I got on my knees and I said, Lord God, forgive me of my unrighteousness towards you. I'm asking you to take a hold of my life and do something with it. Well, that was 28 years ago. 28 years ago, I was a drunk, druggy, screw up, didn't care about life and didn't care what anybody else thought about it. And through that time, I... I uh, had a woman there that stuck with me, and I, I married her 27 years ago, and she's still with me today. But anyhow, God said he was going to get my life off empty, and he has. Today, being illiterate, which I'm not anymore because I started reading the Bible, and I told God, I said, God, you want me to read your word? You have to teach me to read. And I started learning how to read through the word of God. And now I'm a published author, a published songwriter, the Barnes and Nobles, Amazon.com. And and um, I've been married, like I said, the same woman for 27 years. I didn't have to explain my past to her because she lived it with me. And she's stuck with me over all these years. And today, people don't laugh at what God's doing in my life because they've seen a drastic change. I'm not going to say my gas gauge is on full, but it's not sitting on empty anymore. And what a great story. Thank you, Stephen, for that. It doesn't get more personal or more beautiful than that. And we want to hear your stories, too. 844-627-8255. About anything that matters to you. Funny, serious, in between. 844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. our American stories, and it doesn't have to be a holiday for us to honor our veterans and thank them for all of their efforts. They've faced the realities of war and still carry it into their everyday lives once they come home. Ben Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He spent 11 years in the U.S. Army, serving a portion of it under the Special Operations Command. He has received the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, 
broken relationship, and a host of other issues. Here he is beginning a conversation that we might not otherwise have. You can shoot her, the first sergeant tells me, technically. We're standing on a rooftop watching black smoke pillars rise from a section of the city where two of my teammates are taking machine gun fire. Below the small cluster of homes we've taken over is taking sporadic fire as well. He hands me his rifle with a high-powered scope and says, see for yourself. It's the six-year-old girl who gives me flowers. We call her the flower girl. She hangs around our combat outpost because we give her candy and hugs. She gives us flowers in return. What everyone else at the outpost knew, except for me until that day, was that she also carried weapons for insurgents. Sometimes during the midst of a firefight, she would carry ammunition across the street to unknown assailants. According to the rules of engagement, we could shoot her. No one ever did. Not even when the first sergeant morbidly reassured them on a rooftop in the middle of Iraq. Other soldiers didn't end up as lucky. Sometimes they would find themselves paired off against a woman or a teenager intent on killing them. So they pulled the trigger. One of the sniper teams I worked with recounted an evening where he laid up a pile of people trying to plant an IED. It was a turkey shoot, he told me laughing. Then he got quiet and said, eventually they sent out this woman and this dumb kid. I didn't need to ask what happened. His voice said it all. I often wonder what would have happened if the flower girl pointed a rifle at me, but I'm afraid I already know. The thought didn't matter anyway. There was enough baggage from our tours in Afghanistan and Iraq that made coming home a place of uncertainty, anger, and confusion. Not as I had been led to believe, a warm celebration of safety. People only want to hear the band of brothers stories, the one with guts and gusto, not the one where you jam a gun in an old woman's face and shoot a kid. I pause and then add, Look around the room for a second. Andy surveys the restaurant we're in for a moment while I lean in with a half-sardonic smile. How many people can even relate to what we've been through? What would they rather hear about? How Starbucks is giving away free lattes and puppies this week? Or how a soldier feels guilty because he pulled a trigger, lost a friend, or did morally questionable things in war? Hell, I want to hear about the latte giveaway, especially if it's pumpkin spice. This eases the tension, and he smiles. Annie and I feel like we don't fit in. We met a few years ago at the church where he works and where I volunteer. Of the thousands of people that attend, we are a handful of veterans in the congregation. It's often few and far between that I meet other veterans, and those that I do know or have met typically end up running in the same circles. Years ago, Andy fought in the siege of Fallujah. Readjusting to normal life after deployment didn't happen for us. Instead, we found ourselves overly angry, depressed, violent, and drinking a lot. We couldn't talk to people about war, the cost of it, because, well, how do you talk about morally reprehensible things that have left a bruise on your soul? The guilt and moral tension many veterans feel are not necessarily being dubbed as post-traumatic stress disorder any longer, but moral injury. Moral injury refers to the emotional shame and psychological damage incurred when a soldier has to do things that violate their sense of right and wrong. Shooting a woman or child, killing another human, watching a friend die black humor and laughing about situations that would normally disgust them. Because so few in America have served, they can no longer relate to their peers, friends, and family for fear of being viewed as some type of monster or lauded as a hero when they feel the things they did were morally ambiguous or wrong given the nature of the situations they were involved in. 
The gap between the citizen and the soldier is growing ever wider. Whereas in World War II, the entire nation's focus was on purchasing war bonds and defeating the Nazis. Today's populace is quickly amused by the latest Kardashian scandal on TV. Because the populace is more concerned about enjoying their freedoms and going about their day-to-day lives, the veteran can feel like an outcast. As though nothing they did mattered for a country that asked them to go. This is part of the problem with the alienation a soldier feels. People can quickly point out that they didn't force them to volunteer for the military and fight in a war. They could have stayed home. The counterpoint to that argument is that because we have transitioned to an all-volunteer force, those that are opposed should be thanking their lucky stars as the volunteer troops are bearing the, that burden as opposed to having a draft take place in which they could be in the lottery. Additionally, regardless of whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Communist, Liberal, Conservative, Conscientious, Subjector, or Pacifist, we all sent the soldier overseas. Because we live in a democracy, we vote to put men and women in charge of our governing affairs who send troops overseas. Though we may have voted for someone else or even opposed to sending troops overseas, it does not change the fact that we have put ourselves under the governance of the United States. By living in any country in the world, you are submitting yourself to their governing body and the laws, even if you don't vote. Every country on earth has a military of some sort or defense in place, and the lawmakers elected or dictators ruling send men and young women to fight in foreign lands, sometimes unjustly. By shirking responsibility, we only alienate our soldiers more. The moral quagmires they face on the battlefield only continue to dump the weight of shame and guilt onto their shoulders while we all enjoy the benefits of passing the buck and asking, whose fault is it really? On March 3rd, 1986, 11 years after the end of the Vietnam War, Metallica released their critically acclaimed album, Master of Puppets. On the album, a song entitled Disposable Heroes told a story of a young man being used as cannon fodder in the midst of a war and the terror that enveloped him on the battlefield. Three years later, Metallica would go on to release one, A song about a soldier who has lost all limbs and waits helplessly for death. The song would go on to win a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. In an odd twist, both songs are amazingly popular among members of the United States military. During my time at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center, we had an entire platoon that could practically sing every last lyric to one. In Afghanistan and Iraq, these songs were on playlists to get soldiers amped before missions. We sang songs about being used by the populace to die on their behalf and coming home as a vegetable, as crazy as that sounds. We sang those songs because they felt true. And the reason they feel true is because of the conversation we refused to have with the country. Amy Abaddon, a Navy psychologist, stated in an interview regarding moral injury that civilians are lucky that we still have a sense of naivety about the, what the world is like. The average American means well, but what they need to know is that these military men and women are seeing incredible evil and coming home without weighing on them and not knowing how to fit back into society. What many don't realize is that a 2004 study found that grief over losing a combat buddy was comparable more than 30 years later to that of a bereaved spouse whose partner had died in the previous six months. The soul wounds we experience are much greater and require the society as a whole to come alongside us as opposed to pointing us to the VA. In most other cultures, soldiers had purification rites when returning home. These rites occurred in a broad spectrum of warriors that ranged from the Roman centurion to the Navajo to the medieval knight. 
Perhaps most fascinating is that soldiers returning home from the Crusades were instructed to observe a period of purification that involved the Christian Church and their community. Even though the Church had sanctioned the Crusades, they viewed taking another life as morally wrong and damaging to the soul of their knights. In today's era, churches typically put veterans on stage and praise their heroics or speak of a great battle they've overcome while drawing spiritual parallels for their congregation. But they don't talk about war and the moral inequality we're asking our soldiers to bear on their behalf. Dr. Jonathan Shea, the clinical psychologist who coined the term moral injury, says that in order for the soldier and society to find healing, we must come together. He states that we must come alongside the soldier and confess, what you did was done in our name, at our request. We cannot bear your physical wounds or your psychological scars, but we can bear the moral responsibility with you. Your transgressions and more, they are our transgressions too. We confess this together and seek forgiveness together. Whether you're opposed to or agree with war, what we must remember is that these are our fellow brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, flesh and blood, who are desperate to reconnect with a world they feel no longer understands them. We must try and find common ground together. We're not asking you to agree with our actions, but help us bear the burden of carrying them on behalf of the country you live in. A staggering 22 veterans take their lives every day and I can guarantee you part of that is because of the citizen-soldier divide. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if we could help our men and women in uniform bear the weight of this burden they carry? Maybe we rethink exactly what war costs us and what we've asked of those who've gone on our behalf. In the end, no one in their right mind wants war. We want peace. And no one wants it more than the soldier. As General Douglas MacArthur eloquently put it, the soldier above all others prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. And thank you, Benjamin Sledge. And what he says is so true. You know, take a listen to our hour on Major Dick Winters. Towards the end of his life, he was talking about this very same thing, and this is when there were a lot of survivors to commiserate with. So when you see a soldier who's fought, heed the words of Ben Sledge. This is our American stories, the story of a hero and a wounded hero in the soul. Thank you, Glenn.